Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Welcome back to the Educational Renaissance Podcast. My name is Colby Atchison, and I'm here with Jason Barney and Patrick Egan. At Educational Renaissance, our goal is to promote a rebirth of wisdom for the modern era. And today, we're going to be talking specifically about habit training. And each of us have been doing a lot of reading and thinking and writing about habit training. And we hope for our listeners today that this session will be particularly helpful. Uh, Patrick, let's start with you. What is habit training? So habit training is helping guide a child along a pathway of correct movement, correct speech, correct behavior, so that they're acquiring for themselves these experiences, training them in such a way that they acquire for themselves the tools that they need in life for them to actually have an easy, productive, meaningful life. It's a very Charlotte Mason idea. And uh, one of the ideas she puts out there is that if you want to have an easy life, a pleasant life, you need habits. This is true for all of us, grown-ups, children, whoever. So if you want that smooth, easy life, it's actually hard to acquire that if you have a bunch of bad habits. Whereas if you have acquired good habits, they actually create this exponential benefit when you are able to do certain things like tie your shoes easily or get up on time or at the very least arrive on time where you intend to be on time. And you can just think about all kinds of different areas of life where, where you might think to yourself, if I could do this better, how much easier, how much more pleasant would life be? And then you extrapolate that for children. As we're raising children, as we're educating children, how much more pleasant would it be if a child was able to hold their pencil the right way or be able to write for longer spans of time or to be able to focus their attention for a good span of time on a singular object. And so habit training is forecasting what are those habits that are worthy to be acquired? How do we go about creating an environment in which we are all going to grow in our habits and then maintaining those habits in such a way that we all benefit from the acquired habits. Patrick, it's great to hear you just mention some of the different things. And now that I think about it, it, it draws attention to the fact that habits are everywhere in life. And I think that's a probably the most important recognition behind habit training is just how habituated we are as beings. You know, there, there are habits in all, you know, from tying our shoe to picking up a glass of water 
to those incredibly complex habits of learning or writing or thinking that we engage in, we are habituated creatures. And I think that's one of, I mean, Charlotte Mason's great insights, but just to think through how habits ease our lives and how habits are going to happen for us, whatever we do, it's just that they may be good habits or bad habits. They may be less than helpful habits or incredible habits that really spur us on. Habits cover over so much of what we do. And you know, without that, I can't imagine what life would be like if you had to think through and decide about everything you were going to do it's just like our brains don't work that way, right? Once you figure out how to do something or you've done it a number of times, so many aspects of that just fall into the background of our consciousness and you just run through it. And, you know, it's like if you're driving to work and you've followed this same pathway all the time, well, one, there's the whole skill of driving that's almost entirely habituated in our brains. But then even the pathways that you normally take and if you start out on the path to work but are actually trying to go somewhere else, if you don't pay attention, you could find yourself just heading right to work and following the same path and not taking that key other, you know, direction that you were supposed to to get to where you actually want to go this time, right? We're, we're so habituated as creatures, so. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, I think as another example, uh, you know, when you mentioned driving, I think about, I've taught different people how to drive stick shift or a manual transmission vehicle and how... When they're first learning that that skill, it is very challenging and it requires full attention and careful intentionality behind each and every little step and choice required in driving a manual transmission vehicle. Versus someone like me, who's now been driving a vehicle like that for years, where I, I don't even think about, you know, when I every time I push in the clutch and every time I move the, the lever around, it's just it has become habit. And because it's become habit, driving a stick shift vehicle is incredibly smooth for me. Uh, it requires very little effort, and it's quite enjoyable. Whereas I have never driven a right. stick shift vehicle and would be completely, I mean, if you were all in the car with me, our lives would be in danger together if I were trying to <laughs> It'd be a quite taxing experience. Well, let's, let's back up a second, and let's think about, we've talked about habit training, but let's back up. What exactly is a habit? Uh, I don't know if We've been doing some reading and the latest neuroscience, but uh, Patrick, could we start with you here? What What is a habit from a, a neurological perspective and perhaps uh, philosophical perspective? There's been a lot of recent research on habits, particularly looking at the neurology of the brain mm -hmm. and how neurons are connected to one another. We actually it's not just singular neurons, but strands of neurons seem to be wired together. And there are certain habits we have that are like our base code. They're our operating system. And then there are other things that we just keep adding on. It's kind of like installing apps. It's our shoe tying app. It's our uh, <laughs> driving the work app. And we can install lots and lots of different apps onto our hard drives. And it's neurons that are the basis of that. And one of the dictums 
of the habit training uh, science community is that neurons that fire together wire together. And um, yeah, isn't that Hebb's law? I think that's what I've heard. It's Hebb's law. That's right. And so what, what habits are, are those neurons that are programmed to just fire automatically. And like Jason was saying, when you move to a new location and you have to find your way to work and then you have to find your way home, your neurons aren't in a position yet to fire automatically to get you home. But think about a different state where you've lived in the same place for five years and you, your brain can just go on autopilot because you have a whole set of neurons that are well-practiced on the route home. You don't have to think about it. And your brain is actually released to think about other things. So many times you're just automatically driving home and your brain is processing things from, from the day. Or you're talking with your spouse or child about things. And you don't have to tell them to stop because I have to think about each step of my drive home. You don't have to because a habit has been formed. Neurons are firing together, they're operating deep in the substructure of your brain to make things happen. So what does this look like in education then? When you're training a child, for instance, in how to properly hold a pen, how to correctly write their letters of the alphabet, it's not natural for them to do this at first. Uh, and so it takes practice, repeats, to do this properly. And so you're working with them, you're watching them like a hawk as these neurons need to be firing together for a span of time so that they wire together so that at a later point, they're just automatic, they're habitual. You've habituated the child in how to do these things through repetition so that now you don't have to think about how I hold my pen. You don't have to think about how I form my letters. They're just automatic. So when we're talking about habits and habit research and all of that, underlying all of it, what's in the engine room is this getting neurons to fire together. What I find so fascinating about this whole discussion is that in a way, learning a habit is learning itself. Like Patrick, when you describe the neurons firing together in that process for these most basic of skills, like learning to write, it, it makes me realize that in a way, all of learning is that formation of habituated neurons firing together. You know, there are more physical skills or physical ideas, but even the acquisition of language seems to be taking individual words and the meanings that are associated with them and firing those things together in sets of associations so that even learning more abstract or linguistic or mathematical things is connected to this base level habit development process in us as human beings. So whether we're down there at the like base level of things or we're up at some higher skill, like how to relate well to other students in your class and 
habits that you might have of, of relating well, saying, uh, looking people in the eye, you know, saying nice things, expressing things well. Um, habits are sort of the foundation of it all or interacting with it all at, at each level. That's really fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah and, and Charlotte Mason, she's a key interlocutor here who's, who's helped us understand, I think, the value of habit training in education. Uh, one of her famous items is education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life. And when she's referring to education as a discipline, she is specifically referring to that of habit training. I'm wondering if you two could uh, talk a little bit about what Charlotte Mason contributes to this conversation and perhaps her even unique insights into neuroplasticity, which was already coming on the scene in her day in the early 1900s. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the values of Charlotte Mason is she seemed to have a very forward thinking understanding of the mind, neurons, and how they all operate. But she also had a keen sense of children as spiritual beings. And so as she's talking about education as a discipline, you know, some of us hear that word discipline and we think about maybe nuns with yardsticks and just <laughs> discipline, yes. right? Um, but I think she was much more connecting the root word of discipline to another word where we may be familiar with, which is uh, discipleship. That what she's referring to by discipline is training a child in such a way that they are acquiring those habits, acquiring those skills that will help them to live masterful lives as opposed to keeping them down, putting them in their place, which is maybe a different association we have with you know, education as a discipline or life as a discipline. So as grown-ups, we have hopefully acquired some amount of wisdom about what is good and beneficial in life. And we have this view of life's uh, benefits that we can share with the child and we can help them see that an ounce of discipline now can lead to benefit later. And so that's that mode of discipleship as we help them to acquire a full sense of spirituality and movement in their lives where, where they become masters of their own lives. And so another thing that Charlotte Mason indicates about children is that one of the reasons why we need to focus on habit training is because children actually have weak wills. They, they may want to have a better life. They may think to themselves, I don't like the fact that I'm so limited in what I can do. I want to go out and play. I want to be able to read the things that mommy and daddy get to read. I want to be able to do things in life. I want to be I'm able limited. to play the piano better yeah. or kick the soccer ball more accurately. But they become inspired by these things and then they're encountered by their own limitations. And one of those limitations is the weak will. I want to be able to do that. I can't do that though. The will is just too weak. But we grown-ups, hopefully, again, have a stronger will where we can help where they're weak by applying our own will to support them 
to achieve those things that they actually fundamentally want but can't get at for themselves. And so that's where it ties into us as educators thinking through, well, how do we deal with the weakness of the will but also apply habit training to lift up the child above where they currently are to experience a better life for themselves. For those of you listening, I want to step back for a moment and just mention that Patrick uh, is currently, as we record this, working on an ebook on implementing habit training in the classroom. And by the time this podcast will have been launched, um, that'll be out there and on our website at educationalrenaissance.com. Please go check that out, download it, um, share it with others. But I think, you know, it's great to hear you talk about this, Patrick, and all the important ideas uh, because habit training, especially for us as Christians, can often sound strange or sound like it counters a Christian sense of uh, the importance of faith and um, not works, and it can feel like works righteousness to talk in terms of habit training. So I know you've got a couple, a blog article or two that has dealt with that issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to jump off of that idea a little bit more and explain that for us. Well, I think when we look at Jesus as a teacher, as a person who gathers around himself disciples, we could ask questions. Well, what, what is he doing when he is walking, talking with disciples, eating with them, living life with them? He's raising their game in some ways. Uh, he's bringing them to a higher spiritual place through you know, God's grace coming through Jesus to these disciples. They get to commune with Jesus. They hear his preaching, his parables, his teaching, and all of that, but then they also walk with him, and and they see it lived out. And so part of that discipleship is them seeing, what does it mean to bear your cross daily? What does that look like to pray always, to have that connection with the Father? And so uh, Jesus is a great model for teachers of just that presence of self with the the person that you are discipling, Mm -hmm. um, where you are, you have this belief in certain ideals, but you're also living it out before the eyes of your children, before the eyes of your students. And so uh, habit training isn't just a mechanism. It really is this holistic view of yourself, the teacher as a whole person, your students as a whole person, as whole people, and and you're helping them walk their lives in such a way that they can live out basically their ideals. They can live out their faith. They can live out their beliefs in, in various ways. And it's a spiritual process too. You know, I love this passage from Charlotte Mason, where she talks about whether, you know, physical matter and spirit and how those interrelate, like, just because we talk about the brain and neurons and things doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is somehow absent from that. Uh, It's the mystery of the incarnation itself that 
like spirit and body could touch. And I think that's what we're seeing happen in habit training, spiritual things and bodily things mm -hmm. are interacting, moving upon one another in, in some mystical way that I, I'm not sure I could explain, but we believe it's happening. I'm intrigued by this idea that habit training is actually a, a Christian idea. You know, both of you are um, New Testament scholars in your own right, so I'd love to hear maybe one or two other passages that come to mind. Patrick already mentioned some stories from the Gospels. Uh, what are some other passages from, from Scripture that might uh, point us towards this idea of habit training as either discipleship or part of the process of sanctification. Well, one that comes to mind is when Paul addresses Timothy and he just, he says, what I've entrusted to you, now you turn around and entrust that to faithful men. And it, it creates this model for discipleship that the, the act of discipleship is never done. There's always somebody else that as you gain mastery, there's somebody you can turn to that you can bring along that is generational. You just keep passing it down, keep passing it down, keep finding somebody else who, who may be not as far along in their walk or weaker in their faith and invest in them. So that's one passage that comes to mind in, uh, in Timothy. I think there's also a series of places in Paul where he he says, put on then, you know, as God's dearly beloved. And then we get a list of virtues. So there's this image of, you know, we put off and put to death what's earthly in us. And we put on Christ. We put on um, love, patience, joy, all of these things, right, is like putting on clothes. And actually, it's interesting because the English word for habit has this has it at its root uh, a clothing metaphor the idea of of putting on particular clothing articles and it being what you wear in, uh, in almost a way and i think there's a that connection there that that when when paul or the other biblical writers are talking about putting on righteousness in various ways it's like you try it on for size you you work it out you get in the habit of uh, practicing these things daily um, so that they become habitual again. Um, it also makes me think of uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where he has this great passage where he talks about pretending, actually, that you should pretend to have faith. You know, there's that um, father in the Gospels when Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration who says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? And uh, so we have to almost act in some ways like we have the faith or the virtues, the Christian virtues that, that we should have. And that's part of a process of how God, through his spirit, wires those things into our brains and we live them out more. Mm -hmm. that, those are some passages, Colby, I think that. Yeah, I think there is that challenge of saying, I don't want actions or habits to become works righteousness. Um, but there's another way of viewing that active part of our lives. So Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And you, you place your faith in Jesus. And, and there's a sense in which the grace poured out through Jesus is appropriated by faith apart from my works. 
But then there's that response to that grace that says, if he's the truth, don't I want to be doing everything I can to speak truth, to live out that truth, to eliminate falsehood in my life? And that's actually what we're describing in with regard to habit training is having this vision of complete and utter truthfulness. Well, how do I, how do I embody that? You know, what are, what are steps that can be taken each and every day to be as brutally honest, as committed to truth as I can be to root out falsehood? That's a big ask, I think. And it's not based in works righteousness, but the compelling vision of who Christ is that draws us into that desire against our weak wills to be able to try to rise to that standard of, of conformity to the image of Christ. Yeah, definitely. We're going to continue this conversation on habit training, but let me just say that if you're interested in what we're talking about today and you want to hear more, I would encourage you to check out our website, educationalrenaissance.com. You can also follow our page on Facebook and LinkedIn, or you can follow us on Twitter or on all those social media sites, and we're excited to share with you uh, more about what we're thinking and writing about. Of course, if you're also ever interested in uh, having us speak on one of these topics, such as habit training and how habit training fits into a life of discipleship, you can contact us through our website as well. Well, let's get back to this conversation on habit training. I think we've talked about it from a neurological perspective. We've shared some ways that uh, we see it in the New Testament and as a larger part of discipleship. Uh, let's, let's hone in now as educators and focus on the classroom. How do we implement habit training in the classroom? And what are some challenges or problems that we may face along the way? Mm. Well, with that, I turn to Charlotte Mason as she describes a method of habit training. And it begins by establishing these inspiring ideas. So the most compelling way for a child to appropriate for themselves a habit is for them to see for themselves this heroic or this honorable way of living that they would want to acquire for themselves that the child becomes self-directed. They desire something. It's not just me saying, you've got to do it this way and making them conform to that, but helping them to become inspired. Uh, why do you want to practice scales? Well, to become a better pianist. Why do you want to tie your shoes quickly? Well, isn't that going to keep me from getting outside and playing? if I don't tie my shoes quickly. And so they can become inspired for themselves. So the inspiring idea is really essential for beginning a habit training sequence. I think that's so important because sometimes, I think this is really easy for teachers who are first trying to do habit training to think of it like it's something we're doing to the child from mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. rather than something that we're, coming alongside the child to do together. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody tried to manipulate me into <laughs> some habit, yeah. I mean, that'd be, it might work, right? 
it might work and I might end up doing something, you know, Pavlov's bell, ding, 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 you know, sort of thing, getting me to do whatever the habit is. But I wouldn't be the agent and it wouldn't be treating me as a person fully made in the image of God. So I think that's really important, Patrick. Yeah. I mean, think about the end of it. It, it, would the child feel like they've been manipulated or would the child feel like they were supported to accomplish what they themselves set out to do? And I think just asking that question is key before you even start down the road of habit training is what's in the best interests of this child? What would they want for themselves? And if they don't want it, how can I provide that for them? And this is why we want our children reading inspiring books and why we want them to have the true, the good, the beautiful ever before their eyes is because they want to see those examples and say, yeah, that's what I want. We can go, well, let's help you get there one step at a time. Uh, And it's that one step at a time that really is uh, the beginning of habit training proper. So can we break down the steps? Can we, can we get the details? So something as mundane as tying shoes, how do we lay that out? Or shutting the door every time you leave the room? Or how do I show humility? You know, each of these has their steps to it, uh, something that can be practiced. And then uh, once you've laid out the details, and let me interject really quickly, you don't want it to be a long talk. How can you really hone down the details to the shortest message possible? I mean, think about when you've been lectured to, you just check out for half of it. Uh, you don't acquire the details, do you? But if you clearly lay out, you know, one way to be humble is, is just to let somebody else talk, is to be able to praise somebody else. Now you're done. You've given them a couple of things. Let's practice that today. And let's practice that tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and it strikes me too that if you have that sort of inspiring conversation with a student around some area of habit growth, that you can ask questions too, right? Mm -hmm. Like even if the student's not going to necessarily have an answer for what are the steps to showing more humility in my interactions with others, Mm -hmm. having them asking them the question to get their minds started spinning, Mm -hmm. wondering what it would look like to put that into practice, I think is a great step because it, it, again, it helps build their agency in the mm-hmm. issue. Yeah. I think it's a, I think there's an analog here to actually narration mm-hmm. and hang with me here as I explain this, you know, we, and we've, we've done a podcast on narration already, so you're welcome to check that out. But in narration, you know, one of the goals, the chief goal perhaps is to put the work of learning on the child to, to equip them to be self learners. Well, in a similar way with habit training, our goal is to equip them to engage that path of maturity for themselves, to buy into the idea that there's a better life possible if they can adopt particular habits and practices for themselves. But the onus is on them to really desire that vision for the good life. And I just, I can just see that analog to narration there and treating children as persons, uh, helping them see that this is actually something they want to pursue for themselves. Mm -hmm. 
in that way, uh, self-mastery is the goal, actually. It's not about, again, me getting student to cultivate habits mm -hmm. simply. It's about the student learning how to understand him or herself and the process of habit development and how important and crucial that is to their life mm -hmm. and how to, how to actually help them. I mean, we all have habits that we need to develop and it's almost a, I think a natural challenge for us to, whenever you're thinking about habit training, are you habit training yourself? Like we have to always have this first question, right? Do you, are you trying to develop yourself toward the best person that you could be toward a more godlike and Christ-like character through the habits that you are living in on a day in and day out basis. Yeah. So as a parent or a teacher, as you're thinking about habit training, uh, it's breaking down these things into the smallest component as possible, creating a dialogue with your, with the child to have them fully understand what it is. What are the steps to tying a shoe? How do I do it properly? How do I know that it's done? How do I get enough reps that I can do it quickly and efficiently, but still well done so that they don't come untied and flop around when I'm out playing. But once you've established the habit and you've got the buy-in from the child, we're going to be doing this together. Now it's on you as the grown-up to be present with that child, to provide support. And I call this constant vigilance. You're looking for every opportunity to reinforce this skill. And you want as many reps as possible on this that are done well, with a good attitude, with loving support. So instead of standing over the child, putting pressure on them, and you've got a scowl on your face, it's a pleasantness. You know, we're, all we're doing here is tying shoes. And I'm happy to be here with you, tying your shoe. I, I don't, I've cleared my schedule. I love being here with you, tying your shoe. Isn't this great? And so that constant vigilance, looking for those opportunities, working with the child, well, what if I forget to tie my shoe? I'll be right here, I can help remind you, but let's go for as few forgets as possible. Um, and so that supportive environment is so essential to habit training. I'm here with you as a grown-up to just support you as you acquire the habit. That's so important to creating an, a growth environment where habit training is a very natural part of the environment as opposed to this very strict and regimented environment where why are you doing this? Because I'm the authority and you must obey. Not that authority and obedience aren't a part of it, but it's just so naturally done because of the pleasant support that the parent is providing in order for the child as an agent to accomplish the work of, of habit training. Mm -hmm. We've talked about habit training on an individual basis. How can I help this particular child develop a key habit? What does this look like in leading a classroom? Mm -hmm. How do we help a classroom as a, a group of students develop mm -hmm. habits of a community? Yeah, well, I think it begins with planning. So as teachers, uh, a lot of our time is spent either grading or lesson planning. So this is going to speak to those of you 
where maybe up to half of your time is spent lesson planning. Incorporating habit training into your lesson planning is just as essential as the content part of your lesson planning. So it's thinking about all of the students you have as a composite. What does everybody need to learn about? Which could be, you know, your younger, younger students. How do we line up properly when we're going to recess? How do we sit properly to show we're ready to work? How do we focus our attention properly? Versus older students, how do I use the appropriate voice when I'm speaking out loud in a class? How do I express myself with the best vocabulary possible? So there's always something we can be learning in aggregate, and that becomes the habit we're working on. And so, like Jason was saying, I'm speaking to them, but also getting their agency involved. They can see a vision of why I want to show I'm ready to work or why I want to speak with the best possible language. And uh, we're all working on this together, talking it up. We're supporting each other. We're looking for any slippage. <laughs> and we as a class are just celebrating and working on this together. So that begins in lesson planning. It also is incorporated into my thinking about the space. How can I set up the classroom so that it's an environment, just the atmosphere itself is one of support and growth for these habits, but I've also arranged the desks. I've arranged the board. I've set out the bins or whatever it is that, that's the furniture of the classroom in such a way that I optimize support. Can I get to every student? Can I see every student? Can they enter into the classroom with this immediate sense that this is a place where that habit makes sense? So those are a couple of, of things that I as an educator working with a group of students can be thinking through to really plan and create this environment where habit training is, is just an extension of the academic lesson and the environment that I'm creating. I think it's really important to have both of those things in our minds when we consider habit training. The individual personal coaching of one student in an area of growth that we've identified and, and having that great personal discussion, relational alliance are built with the student to make some headway in an area that they know will help them in some way. But then there's also this kind of more global classroom use of habit and training and habit to improve the running of the classroom and make things better in terms of the atmosphere and things like that. I think those are two essential ideas. And, and with the, the latter, that second one of that classroom um, development and habit training, I always think of um, Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion mm -hmm. 2.0, which if you haven't read it, it's a great book where he unpacks so many different practical techniques that teachers can engage in in the classroom. And uh, he, he come, comes out of the charter school movement. As a classical educator, you might not be inclined to pick up a um, modern education book like that, but really so many of the 
practices that he's identified come out of this same mindset of classical education of quality content, students doing the work, really engaging well with material, there being a right answer, the format that students give it to us in matters, all of that. And so I would recommend Teach Like a Champion 2.0, but they have one technique that they call uh, strategic in investment from procedure to routine. And I just think that's great because the idea is that in the classroom, there are so many things that just happen uh, on a day-to-day basis. And we actually follow procedures in those things and they can become habitual and turn into routines. And we can waste a lot of time in school if we don't routinize certain key practices. Mm -hmm. So um, I think one of his teachers that he kind of looked at and came up with this idea from was named Douglas Curry. And he did this procedure in his classroom where they were going to turn in lots of homework papers. So he made this whole procedure for how they would turn in so that they got it down from the turning in of homework papers could take two to three minutes of class time. And they got it down to like this 15 second thing that they had practiced. And um, the way that, that Lamov talks about it is that's a whole load of instructional time when you add it up over the whole course of a year that investing in that procedure, making it a routine, making it a habit, got back for learning, for the for learning content, valuable content. And so I think that's a really important idea to always think about. You know, you can over-routinize uh, certain things, I would imagine, but I think it's something we really need to think through. What does it actually look like in the classroom? How can we even optimize our classroom experience through this principle of habit and habit training for groups as a whole? And I, I bring it back to the initial point, the easy, pleasant life. Now, imagine being in a classroom where all of your time isn't sucked up by these things. And so we have this pleasant and easy classroom where learning is what's going on, not just turning in papers for the whole day. Right. I think that's a great word to to end on, Patrick. Maybe you could just offer one final thought for us on on habit training leading to the easy, uh, fruitful, flourishing life. Uh, what would you want listeners to hear as a takeaway to this podcast? Yeah, I think um, habit training can be a really challenging area of teaching. It's something that requires skill. And I think fundamentally acquiring the habit of habit training, of actually seeing and seizing every opportunity you have to be able to invest in your students' lives, of viewing them as whole persons, helping them gain that agency to live masterful, purposeful, meaningful lives. And it's, it's one of the most rewarding aspects of teaching, even though it's also simultaneously one of the most challenging aspects of teaching. Thank you so much, Patrick and Jason. It's a great vision for us as educators. And thank you to our listeners for checking out our podcast uh, with Educational Renaissance. We're so grateful to have you here. Please check out our website, educationalrenaissance.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and, and LinkedIn. And we look forward to having you join us in the future.